for the visitors who are here, you may be hearing a sermon out of a book that you're not accustomed to hearing a sermon out of, and that's the book of Nahum. So if you would turn there, it's in the Old Testament, right towards the end, right before Habakkuk, and right after Micah, the book of Nahum. And I've been preaching through it, but you're, you're getting in relatively early. We're still in chapter 1. So turn to Nahum chapter 1, and I'm going to ask the Lord to guide me. Father, I thank you again for the day. I thank you for the songs that we sing, the truths that are in them for our musicians and our singers and how they seek to find truths and songs. And God, I pray that those would help us to learn, help us to always just reinforce the truth that is your word. I pray now as we look at this section of Nahum, um, this section of judgment, that you would help us to understand that side of you, and that you would also help us to understand the opposites of that and and the grace and mercy that you have given us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so Nahum, kind of a review to make sure everybody understands what's going on here. If you haven't heard of Nahum, you have probably heard of Jonah. Jonah's a little more uh, well-known book, the story of Jonah, of course, getting swallowed by the whale or the fish and all those things. Well, Nahum is like a sequel, 100 years later, to what happened with Jonah. Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, a city in Assyria, that, and it was, the Assyrians were very wicked people, and Jonah went and preached to them, and they repented. And for a hundred years, or, or roughly, they lived in peace with God. They, the city of Nineveh actually changed their ways, and God spared them for a hundred years, roughly. And now we come to the point where Nahum is, and Nahum is going and prophesying to the Assyrians now because they have turned back to their wicked ways. And when I say wicked ways, I mean wicked ways. The more I study, the more I find out about just how wicked the Assyrians were. If you were here for equipping hour this morning, Paul was talking about logic and evil and good, and he said everybody always wants to point to Hitler as being like this most evil man ever. And he said... There were some that came before him that made Hitler look like a choir boy. This. The Assyrians made the Germans look like like choir boys. The amount of wickedness that they were putting on people, on everybody around them, including Israel, but not just Israel, everybody, was amazing. And God has had enough, and that's where we are kind of coming in here. So in the last message, we heard about God's sovereignty over his creation and how there's many times that he comes and he supersedes his natural order in order to punish cities or nations. For example, he parted the Red Sea, completely going against nature, completely a a supernatural event that allowed Israel to go through and use that to punish Egypt by killing Egypt's army. Um, So we saw a lot of that. And and that's what Nahum is now prophesying is going to happen to Nineveh. Roughly 100 years after they repented, 
this, what we'll hear today, is that he is predicting utter destruction of the city of Nineveh. But then in the last verse, in the last message, it was verse 7, it said, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. And we want to remember what the great comfort is in times of trouble and what great comfort it is that if you trust in Christ, you will never have to see his wrathful side. Period. That is the comfort I can give you today. We're going to hear a lot of wrath of God today. We're going to see this prophecy of God destroying Nineveh. But if you trust in Christ... Praise God, you will never have to see that wrathful side coming down on you. Will you see some correction from God? Yes. It's the difference between a loving father correcting his children and a judge bringing down judgment on those that don't belong to him. That's the difference that we see. What great comfort is it that we know that? If you trust in him, you know the loving Father, the gentle Master, the merciful God. But if you don't trust in Him, the only side of God that you will ever know is the wrathful, vengeful, vengeful, infuriated God that you deserve. And praise God if you trust in Him. It's the same holiness of God that drives both. Okay? It's important that we understand that. And I'm going to get into this a little more later, but there's this idea that a loving God would never do this and a loving God would never do that. And I I quote Paul Washer when he says, no, because God is love, he has to do that. And And he used the example, because I love babies, I hate abortion, right? And so because of God's love, there has to be vengeance. Because of God's love, there has to be justice. And we have to understand that. A loving God will absolutely judge people. A loving God will absolutely send people to hell. He will absolutely punish. And as we're going to see today, he will absolutely destroy Nineveh because he's a loving God. And that's important that we understand that. So it's the holiness that drives both And that's the the wrath. The wrathful side of God is where we are today. So if you will turn to chapter 1, verse 8. So I'm going to read verse 7 again just to get the context here. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood... He will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place. So we return here to the flood language. We talked about it a little bit last time. And this is not just figurative. So you're going to get a little bit of a history lesson here, which I found very fascinating. I hope you do as well. This is not just figurative language. This is not just like it's coming real fast like a flood. No, actually what happened, that is exactly what happened. So the city of Nineveh was destroyed in 612 B.C. So 612 years before Christ. um, Shortly after Nahum made this prophecy, the city of Nineveh actually fell. 
But how it fell is what's very interesting to me. The, the, there was a ruler of Babylon, and God uses it. He, he has throughout the Old Testament. He does today. He uses other nations, other wicked nations, to punish other wicked nations. And that's kind of what happens here. The nation of Babylon, or the, the ruler of Bab- Babylon named Nabopolassar, Nabopolassar, he united the Babylonian army, army with the Medes and the Scythians. And he did that because Assyria was so powerful, nobody could take them by themselves. So this guy comes along, he's like, I'm taking them down. And with right, I mean, understandably why, because they were absolutely wicked. And so he unites them, and he, go, he starts marching into Assyria, and he starts winning wars. And they get to Nineveh. And Nineveh was an incredible city for its time. 180,000 people, which for a city in ancient times, 180,000 people is absolutely crazy to think about. Cause, and and uh, so just amazing. The wall, it had, a, it had a fortified wall all the way around the city. It was described almost as unmeasurable. It was so big. And so he gets to that point. But remember... The city had the Tigris River on the back side of it, which was part of what made it so hard to attack. It was part of its defense. You had this huge river on the back side, and you couldn't get to it from that side. And so he gets there. They go to trying to tear down the wall. They did not have, they could not penetrate the wall. Battering rams, all the things at the time, they could not penetrate the wall. And they had laid siege to Nineveh and were there for trying to get in. For nearly three months. So think about this, the type of wall, the type of city this is. It was extremely well built, extremely strong, and they could not get in. And part of that was the Tigris River. But remember back in verse 4, look, look back in verse 4, it says, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. And the point of verse 4 was, I am the one that controls all of these natural phenomena. I'm the one that controls nature. I'm the one that controls the weather, right? I'm the one that controls the river. This river that you deem so important, I can dry it up. And in this case, now we get to verse 8, or I can cause it to flood, right? He brings it, he will bring an overflowing Flood. So after about three months trying to siege, Babylon could not penetrate the walls, a huge rain came. Now remember, we know Nineveh had been there for at least a hundred years, and they had never had a flood take out the wall. But now all of a sudden, shortly after Nahum makes this prophecy, a flood comes, the Tigris River gets so high and so powerful, it takes out a large section of the back wall. Um, of the city and then once the wall fell it, it was interesting so the king of Assyria there was a oracle a fam- that this is not scriptural but there was an oracle that said Nineveh will never fall until the river becomes its enemy well when that wall came down the king of Assyria remembered that oracle and he gathers all of his concubines into a room, builds a fire, like a funeral fire 
pyramid thing and lights himself on fire. Puts all the gold and all of his possessions in there. Him and his wives locks the doors, lights it on fire, and basically commits suicide because he feels like he can't win. He doesn't want them to take him captive, so he burns himself. And once he burns himself, then all the rest of the Assyrians go and open the gates thinking, well, maybe we can surrender, maybe they'll have mercy, and that's not the case. So once the wall fell, the the, um, the the armies marched in. So that so indeed, what we see, the point of all that is, an overflowing flood brought an end to this place, just as it says. And it's interesting, I think, to look at the utter end of its place. Many cities throughout the ancient world would be overtaken. I mean, war was not uncommon. War has never been uncommon ever since the fall of Adam, right? But they would be overtaken, and the new governments would take control, right? Hey, I got this great city. I got this great, look how strong this wall is. Let's take this for ourselves and make this our new Babylonian city, right? Or the new Medes or whatever, whoever it was. But that's not what they did. And nobody would have predicted this except they were a prophet, I mean, this is probably the largest city in the history of the world to this point. And its wall was so strong they couldn't withstand it. For They couldn't tear it down in three months. But yet it was utterly destroyed. As the king burned himself, the armies went through with a vengeance and left the place utterly desolate. Historian Will Durant wrote in a book, this is what he wrote. Nineveh was laid waste as ruthlessly and completely as her kings had once ravaged Susa and Babylon. The city was put to the torch, the population was slaughtered or enslaved, and the palace so recently built by the recent king was sacked and destroyed. At one blow, Assyria disappeared from history. Three months before that, nobody ever would have believed that statement. But Nahum said, this is exactly what's going to happen. He went on to say, In a little while all but the mightiest of the great kings were forgotten, and all the royal palaces were in ruins under the drifting sands. Two hundred years after its capture, Xenophon's ten thousand marched over the mounds that had been Nineveh and never suspected that these were the site of an ancient metropolis that had ruled half the world. 200 years later, the thing was completely buried, completely covered up. Matter of fact, it it wasn't until the 1800s that they discovered Nineveh, the the location, and uncovered it and excavated it and all that, and now it's an archaeological truth. Matter of fact, it was skeptics up until the mid-1800s were constantly saying, Nineveh doesn't even exist. The Bible's wrong. See, the Bible talks about this. If a city that big would have been found, and then guess what? They found it. Where are all those people then? Can't find them. They disappear, right? The scoffers, they disappear when they're proven wrong. But the point is, the Bible was exactly right. It was erased off the map and hidden for 2,000 years or 3,000 years. It was a truly an utter end to this place and this reign of terror. As he said, it would be in verse 8. Now look at verse 9. What do you conspire against the Lord 
He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. And this question, I believe he's turning to Israel with this question. What do you conspire against the, the Lord? It's a question that Nahum asked to Israel. And it's a question that needs to be put to all people in all places. We see how accurate the prophecy of Nahum in verse 8 was. And now we see another prophecy in verse 9. He will make an utter end to it. What is it that you conspire against the Lord? What is it that you are doing that is against God's plan? What is it that you are doing that is against God's kingdom? He will put an end to it. He will utterly destroy it. All of these worldly kingdoms at some point will come to an end. That's a promise. That's a promise that's been accurately prophesied throughout Scripture. He will make an end to it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Once God judges your conspiracy against him, it is an utter destruction and they will not rise up a second time. He put an end to Assyria. He put an end to Nineveh. They were no more. He ended that. It was God's judgment that ended it. In other words, watch what happens to Nineveh. Pay close attention as we go through this because that is how I will treat those that are against me. That's what's got basically what God's saying here. And nobody's escaping that. Verse 10 For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. Has anybody ever seen wheat stubble burn in here? Ever take a a torch to that field? Especially if you're in Kansas. Get a little western Kansas wind out there and you got a wheat stubble field. It's gone. It burns as quick as gasoline, and there's, when you burn wheat stubble, there's not even ashes. It's so dry and so small and so good of fuel to burn quickly that it leaves nothing, right? That's what he's saying here, like, like tangled thorns. Anybody ever taken – thorns are such an incredible problem. Anybody ever tried to clear green briars? We have, we have them in abundance in Oklahoma. Leave your place alone for a while and they'll be all over the place. And they're hard to get rid of. And you can burn them when they're green and they do nothing. They come right back. It's like they thrive on it. But if you cut them, you cut them down and let them dry out and wad them up into a ball and throw them on a fire and just see how quick it's, they, they burn like wheat stubble. And that's what he's saying here. It, it's like those people that are against God are like the dead thorns. They're like the wheat stubble. They're nothing. Their opposition means nothing to God. He's not afraid. He's not fighting. He's not worried about this battle. But he will burn it up like chaff and it'll be over just like that. No, not even a trace left after he's finished. And then verse 11, he says, From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. From you. And he's talking to Nineveh here, the, 
the city of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria. You comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. This stubborn rebellion against the will of God on the part of the city of Nineveh has produced a leader, a prince who has turned passive resistance into active opposition. You, you guys can see the difference. There is a difference and, and we see it, I think, very clearly today. There are many, many people who are at enmity with God. Everyone who is not in Christ is at enmity with God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everyone is at enmity with God. Everyone is a sinner, Right? We're against God by our very nature. But most are passive in that. There's a passive resistance to God. There's a wanting to please our flesh. We have a sin nature and we want to do that. But there are some who have turned that passive resistance into active resistance, which those who plot against God, against His plan. Old Palmer Robertson said it like this, The womb of the wickedness which is Nineveh has produced a horrid monstrosity, a son of Belial. And the word there, the the New King James here uses wicked counselor. There's different words and different translations, but they all mean Belial. That's the original word, Belial. That's the literal translation. What it means is without value or without worth. This wicked ruler is absolutely worthless. He's without value. And that happens when people turn from their passive resistance of God to opposition, direct opposition, active opposition. It's a person, the the meaning of the word is someone who is despicable or has been turned over completely to a debased mind. If, and if you turn, turn to 2 Corinthians for just a second, I want to show you what Paul says. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Well, let me back up. Read verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Belial, the word here, is the opposite of Christ. It's the opposite of good. Paul is showing in, in Corinthians there that there, is, there are basically two kingdoms and they're diametrically opposed. It's the good and evil, right? It's righteousness versus darkness. Righteousness versus evil, light versus dark. They cannot be in the same place, right? And that's what Paul is showing. There are two kingdoms, two worldviews uh, in this case. And what we have to remember, what we always have to remember is, behind every evil ruler, there is one who is more wicked. 
Behind every evil ruler, there is a wicked creature named Satan, right? That's the ultimate adversary of God. And so behind this evil, there is an evil figure standing behind the ruler of Nineveh, prodding, mocking, plotting to destroy the kingdom of God. And behind every wicked ruler, there is that. But there is one who stands against him. The divine counterpart to his position of power, and it is the Christ. The anointed king who rules for the Lord throughout the ages. Do you know that ruler? Because every other bit of knowledge that you have is absolutely worthless. It is Belial if you know not the Christ. And that's the key. We heard in the equipping hour this morning, we were talking about, you know, all this information and apologetics and how I can defend the faith, but you don't know the faith. I think Boyd brought up that the biggest question that he had was an unbeliever is, who is Jesus? And that is the biggest question that we all must ask ourselves today is, who is Jesus? Who is the one that will stand in the face of Belial? Who is the one that will stand in the face of whatever wicked ruler this wicked culture is going to birth? Because you can get rid of them and there will be another one. There always has. We've seen it for 6,000 years since the beginning of time. Since Adam fell in the garden, there's been wicked rulers rise up. And somebody will kill them. And there's another one rise up. And somebody will kill them. And there's another one rise up. And what are we going to do about it? Well, let me tell you, it's already been done. It's already been accomplished. The Christ has stood in the face of of the adversary. And he has defeated him. And so instead of us trying to fight this battle on our own, we need to turn to the Christ and let him fight it. We are in a strange place in our country that we've never seen anything like this before. And there is lots and lots of talk about how we should go about our business and how we should deal with it. And how, what are we going to do about these evil rulers? And how are we going to get our country back? And how are we going to get God allowed back in this and that? And all of those things. And I know for me, and I know for most that I've heard, we're lacking the biggest thing. And that is the power of God. We have all these ideas about how we're going to do this and we, we need to take over the politics and we need to take over the schools and we need to take over the jails and whatever it is, your job and all of this. And the reality is we can't take over anything. We'll be just like the rest of them. What we need to do is turn back to the power of Christ and pray to Him that He will lead us where we need to go. I think that's what he's showing here through Nahum prophesying to Nineveh. Look, Israelites, you can't do it. Do you think Israel would have liked to have been the ones to take down the wall and invade Nineveh? If I was in Israel at the time, I would have been wanting wanting to be the one. I know me. And I know probably most of you would have too. Like they've been suppressing us for a hundred years, for 200 years, for all this time. They've been killing all of our loved ones. And they didn't just kill. 
It wasn't just shoot them and throw them in a ditch. They made pyramids of heads. They skinned people and, and wrapped it around their columns to give you an idea of the wickedness that was Assyria. And you can bet Israel would have liked to have been the ones. They wanted to fight. But God says, no, it's not your fight. It's my fight. And I will go about my business how I choose. My ways are higher than your ways. And that's what we see. So he uses Babylon. He uses the Medes and he goes in and he wipes this place out just how Nahum predicted. And then in verse 12, it says, Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Verse 13, For now I will break off this yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. It's interesting that this is the first time Nahum actually says, Thus saith the Lord. And that's the customary beginning to any prophecy, but he says it a little later. And I don't I think what he's doing here is actually just a strengthening of the language. It is an utter cry to re emphasize that Nineveh is going to be utterly destroyed. And it goes it's almost repetitive about what's going to happen here. Yeah, it's going to be utterly destroyed. And it's going to be utterly destroyed. But he's making it very clear, his position and his point, so that there's no doubt what is being said here. And he uses the language there. It says, we'll be cut down. And it's an agricultural term. term. We would almost use it today like they will be mowed down. And so the picture that you get, at the time they would use scythes to harvest wheat, right? And they'd be like a three or four foot blade. And one swipe of that scythe would bring down hundreds of stalks of wheat or barley, right? Just fall to the ground just immediately. And that's the language that he's given here. All these powerful Assyrians that think they're so on top of the world right now, with the swipe of God's hand, will fall like grass. And the reiteration, I think, is necessary because the Assyrians are so strong and so numerous their strength at this time is undiminished. And God will not wait until the enemy degenerates into a weakened state before he brings the calamity, before he brings the chaos. It's actually the opposite. God destroys his enemies at their strongest point. Why? Because he wants to demonstrate that even at your strongest point, you are nothing but grass to me. I can mow you down. I can send the cattle in to eat you. I can destroy you however I want when you are at opposition to me. And there's another really important point in this verse. It says, when he passes through. Just like when God passed through Egypt on the night of the Passover, he will pass through Assyria. And he's using the Babylonians to, to, as, a, as a means, but ultimately is God who will be there. I think there's a very important lesson that we need to learn in this. I think this has been left out mistakenly out of many teachings on God through the church, by the church, 
throughout many, many years. It's, and it's just like the, when you go, well, let's just, let's just turn. Let's turn back to Exodus. Because this is what immediately came to my mind when I read this. Go to Exodus chapter 12. We've been, in equipping hour, we've been going through the plagues of Egypt and seeing how God was bringing his people out of Egypt. And this is the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Actually, let's, let's, let's look at chapter 11. He says it three different times, but we're going to look at chapter 11. In verse 4, then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. It's very clear there, he says, I will go out into the land of Egypt. And then if you skip to chapter 12, verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. It is very clear here who is executing the judgment in Egypt. And there's many, many times, and I don't know where it comes from. I have not been able to discover, find where it comes from, but when you hear that taught and you hear that preached so many times, it is said the death angel goes forth and takes and kills the firstborn. That is not in Scripture. And I checked all the translations and I couldn't find it in any translation that a death angel is mentioned to going in and killing the firstborn in Egypt. It is God who went in and killed the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. It is God who goes into Assyria. It is God who brought the flood and destroyed the earth. We have this weird idea that God is not wrathful. We've forgotten to preach the wrath of God in the church. And that is causing a problem. If I hear one more time, and I hope nobody in here says this, but I am tired of hearing it, that God doesn't send anybody to hell. They choose to go there themselves. Really? Who? I haven't talked to one person that said, I really want to go to hell, this place of torment. They don't choose to go there. They earn it. Yes, I understand the premise. But God sends them there. It's just like prison. When a prisoner goes before a judge for murder, he doesn't send himself to prison. He runs. He hides. He does everything he can to get a lawyer and stay out of that place. But then the judge ultimately is the one that sent him there. That's the same way it is with hell. God does the punishment. He's the one that killed the firstborn in Egyptian, and he's the one that destroyed Assyria. Why? Because God is just. And he will not allow his people to suffer forever at the hands of wicked men and wicked women. 
and wicked nations and wicked governments. He will step in. But he's slow to anger. So he tarries. But it's important that we understand God is the judge. And we see why in the last part of this verse, as we look at as we look at it, it says, For I have afflicted you, but will afflict you no more. For now I will break off this yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. Nahum is a it's a dark book. I've talked about this before. It's tough. It is hard. I'm not saying we should revel at the judgment because we all deserve it. Okay? But for the grace of God, there go I. I'm right there with the Assyrians. Right? I'm right there with the Babylonians. But God's grace has been bestowed on me. And that is what's incredible about the last, when you see this, for I have afflicted you, but will afflict you no more. Who, were, who was afflicting the Israelites? Who was putting them under suppression? Who was being so bad to them on the earth? What was Assyria? But what does God say here? He says, I have. God's people, God's nation, he's using the nation of Assyria to put affliction on them. Why? To draw them closer to him, to give them the need for him, to give them the understanding that they have the need for him. So it's a, And this goes, man... You won't hear this in a word of faith, church. God afflicts his people? Absolutely. Why? Because you will understand him better and you will draw closer to him. And it is ultimately for your good. And he can do that because he's all-knowing and he knows what's best for you. But he will ne- you will never see the wrath. I told you at the beginning, you will never experience the wrath of God. You will experience his correction. And that's what we see here. We see God afflicting his people, not destroying them. He doesn't give them the wrath that he gives Assyria. He doesn't give them the wrath that he gives Nineveh, but he gives them correction. And sometimes correction hurts. And sometimes growth in Christ hurts. And sanctification, becoming holy, being set apart from the world, hurts. But listen to what he says, though. I have afflicted you... But will afflict you no more for now. I will break off this yoke, his yoke from you, and burst your bonds apart. Why is God so destroying Nineveh utterly? It's for the good of his people, and it's for the good of his name, and it's for the good of all that is good, that is righteous. His anger, it is slow to anger, but when it comes, it comes with fury. And it is right that it does. And praise God. If you are in Christ, that verse is speaking to you. He will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. He will not leave you in oppression. He will not leave you there. You will find rest in him. And like I've said before, this is the pattern of Nahum, the utter judgment of Assyria. 
is the relief of Israel. And that's where you see, so you're seeing both sides of God. Like I said at the beginning, you don't want to know the wrath of God. You don't want to see that side. But in this, we see both sides. We see the wrath of God freeing Israel. Same way with Egypt, right? The wrath of God, the, same, the very same sea that was parted allows its safety for Israel. They get through with safety, complete protection from that sea. And the same, very same sea that protected Israel destroys Egypt, destroys their army. The protection of God's people is the judgment. It's not a hard concept. It's really not a hard concept. We all understand this concept at a smaller level, right? You have a rapist out there. His judgment is to protect all the other women, right? By throwing him in prison or putting him to death, you're protecting everybody else. You have a murderer out there. By eliminating them, the judgment on that murderer is the salvation of other people, right? It's saving their lives. That's what God does here. That's what God has done for his people since he had a people, since the beginning of time. The judgment comes on those who are against his people in order to save his people. So the wrath is the grace. It's all together. You cannot separate those things from the attributes of God. It can't be... It can't be taught enough that God does these things to draw us closer to him. And whatever he does is for the good and blessings of his people. And more importantly, for the magnification and the glorification of his name. And the scoffer will say, oh, that sounds arrogant. That just sounds boastful and prideful. And it would be true if I was the one doing it. And it would be true if you were the one doing it. But because it's God Almighty doing it and he actually deserves it, it's not. But he's the only one that does. He's the only one worthy of praise. He's the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one worthy of the glory that can be given to him. And he's the only one that will get it, ultimately. God, I thank you for all that are here. And God, I I pray that you would take a message that was very feeble and weak and use your strength in the the weakness of this preacher that you would make the message strong and that you would get glory from yourself in that. That we would always turn to you in our times of trouble and that we would remember that the glorious grace that's been bestowed on us. I also ask that you'd bless this food that we're going to eat. God, and just for always providing for us and uh, bless the time of fellowship that we have as we, as we eat it together. In Jesus' name, amen.